uh, if you have migrated here from another state or uh, you're not a native to North Texas, uh, if you go that way about 30 minutes, uh, it turns into nothingness. Uh, And Texas has a lot of bizarre nothingness out there, moonscape. Uh, You know, if you're new to Fort Worth, this is where the West began and... If you go watch the, what is this year, 1883 series that they made recently, a lot of it shot in downtown Fort Worth, down in the stockyards here, and it talks about what, what happened uh, with the westward uh, expansion of civilization here in America with pioneers. Anyway, uh, I do live about 30 minutes that way, and consequently, no trees will grow out where I live. Right now, my ground is cracked open so uh, severely that you could lose a small child and a small dog in the cracks in the ground in my backyard. Looks like a small Grand Canyon is happening back there right now. Thank God for the little rain we had this, this uh, past week. But uh, let me show you a picture. Uh, two years ago, this was our best tree. Two years ago, that tree was this big around and would have filled this whole space here uh, on the platform, which is rare out where I live where the mesquite trees are this tall and the rattlesnakes and there's nothing else, you can see the stump under there. It's really big. It's like this big around. This was our biggest tree, our oldest tree, our best tree. Uh, I have two white-winged doves that I've watched raise the family in that tree. Uh, They're like pets. We feed them. we park our cars there in the driveway under the shade of that tree. It was so big, and it, uh, it brought a lot of joy to our lives. But two years ago, during Ice Mageddon, uh, that tree was killed. It froze to death. And after that, it was just it turned brown and, and crispy and dry, and it became a hazard, and so we had to cut the tree down. I procrastinated uh, to remove the stump, yeah, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, and I never got to that. And you can see the stump still there in, in the ground. And then a thing happened all of a sudden. Uh, new life began to spring up out of that old dead tree and that old dead stump. Here comes n- new life shooting out of the stump. Now, I know you don't care about my old dead trees and, and all that, but I want to show you this because this is the exact illustration of Daniel chapter number 4 that God uses to communicate a message to you about what pride will do in the human life. You can be like that flourishing tree, but if pride takes hold in your heart and is not repented of, it will bring you down and it will humble you. And judgment will come in your life. And you say, well, then my life's ruined and it's over. I keep trying to communicate this message to you. Forget what your spiritual forefathers told you. Well, if you mess up, you can never... Forget that. That was a lie. There is always hope in Jesus Christ. There is always a life springing out of death. There is always repentance to be found in Jesus Christ and forgiveness and restoration and a way forward. Now that's part of our story this morning. The Bible is going to make a very strong uh, denunciation of pride this morning. Pride's a grievous sin in the eyes of God. 
Uh, but we struggle, I struggle, I project it on you, but I struggle because in English the word pride has many nuanced meanings. And they're not all bad. And so I want to talk about that for a minute because it can be confusing. It has been to me and perhaps it has been to you. For example, is it wrong for me to say, man, I'm so, as your pastor, I'm so proud of you because of your heart for missions and helping these people around the world? Is it wrong for me to say, I'm so proud of you who are engaged in discipleship and you're, you're restoring the mission of the church and, and you're going to bear fruit in your life and this is the ultimate destiny for which you create. I'm so proud of you for engaging in the mission of Jesus Christ. We say, well, pride's bad. Yeah, but in English, the word is nuanced. It's not always negative. For example, is it wrong to be proud of your children? Is it wrong to say, well, I'm so proud of my disciples. Look how they're growing. Look how they're reaching out to people. Look how they are engaged in in God's service. No, because in English, the word pride has multiple definitions, very nuanced word. For example, pride in English can be used in a negative sense. If it's used that way, what it will mean is an inappropriate evaluation of self-worth that goes beyond propriety. In other words, you value yourself much more than you really <laughs> you think too much of yourself. Pride in a positive sense is more a feeling of joy because of accomplishments of yourselves or, or pride in the accomplishment of others. Or it could be pride of ownership. You know, you're the proud new owner of a, you know, Tesla Yay! Okay, well, pride of ownership. Let let me put the dictionary definition up. I I picked the two definitions we're going to deal with today. Pride. It can be inordinate self-esteem. Another good word for that would be conceit. Another good word for that would be arrogance. And you can feel the negative sense right there. This person thinks they're way beyond what they really are. Too big of a, 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 too much self-worth. How about that? The other side of that word, pride, can mean, definition B, delight or elation arising from an act. So proud of that A you brought home on your report card. It's a positive sense. Uh, It's elation arising from an act, a possession, or a relationship. For example, the dictionary quotes this, such a thing as parental pride. So what I want you to see is that pride in English can have two meanings One is very positive, and you should be proud of your children and your disciples and and those things. But one is a very negative sense. And the word really that when we condemn pride this morning, let me use the synonyms for a minute, arrogance and conceit are really what we're dealing with. Now, the Bible deals with both, in case you're curious. Both usages of pride are found in the Scripture. For example, in 2 Corinthians 7... Paul says this, Make room for us in your hearts, talking to the Corinthians. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. 
I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Now, when somebody says they'll live or die with you, and they take great pride in you, that's that's real parental talk again. And Paul talks to his disciples like a parent all the time, like a mother or father. And uh, he uses both the feminine and the masculine when dealing with his disciples. Sometimes he'll say like a mother nourishes or like a father this. Clearly this is the language he's using with the Corinthians and saying, guys, I'm so proud of you. Now, 1 Corinthians, he really ripped them a new one. 2 Corinthians, they've got some things corrected now, and he's telling them why he's proud of them. You've done good now. We're making a lot of pride, and I'm so proud of you. Listen, you know I would die for you, and you know I'm suffering a lot physically and without stuff, but listen, it's all worth it. I have such joy, right? My joy knows no bounds. And what was his joy? Seeing them do the right things was what was bringing him great joy. Now, that's pride in a right sense, and if you want to have that kind of pride, then I think that's good for you to be proud of your your children, your disciples, your, hopefully your pastor, hopefully your church, hopefully uh, of a lot of things. But arrogance and conceit now are condemned in the Bible, but a lot of times the word pride will be used, and I want you to be able to distinguish the difference. For example, Isaiah 16, 6, we have heard of Moab's pride. Watch how the scripture clarifies this. How great is her arrogance of her conceit? There's both synonyms right there in the verse. Let her pride and her insolence, uh, but her boasts are empty. Isaiah 2.17, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. So what I want you to see is that both usages of pride are found in Scripture. Clearly what's being condemned is this arrogance conceit uh what's being praised is pride in your disciples pride in your in your in your children pride in doing the right thing today's story from daniel chapter 4 is about the use of pride as arrogance uh, egotism egocentricity conceit insolence the same words that we've read from the word of god in daniel chapter 4 it's going to have a different flavor when you read it. Uh, we're moving away from that somebody telling a story to Daniel 4 where the style of writing changes and the chapter takes on the form of a letter or a royal decree directly from Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, there's not a third person saying, here's what happened. Now Nebuchadnezzar is saying, here's what happened to me and I'm going to write this in a formal decree so the whole kingdom can read it when you read the story and part of this is technical and you you don't care but it's written in aramaic originally and the opening verse could actually be attached to the previous chapter we're not clear you know where it ends but as it stands in your english bible the chapter opens with praise to god tells the story and closes with praise to god the story is bracketed with worship on both ends you're going to see that when i read it in just a moment and foremost The whole chapter is a story against or about pride and about how in our arrogance we can evaluate ourselves as the ultimate reality. In other words, all we do is think of ourselves, all we do is live for ourselves, and we worship the idol of self 
And when you elevate self against all others, you become the only ultimate reality. And this is how you can get your truth instead of the truth and your reality instead of the reality everyone else is living around you. And when you live this way, uh, you're elevating bits of creation against the Creator. This is the big danger. And you begin to challenge who is the ultimate king. Who is the ultimate sovereign? It's another word for kingly ruler. Who is the supreme ruler? Was Nietzsche right? I referenced this last week. Is there a God? Or did humans create God? They needed this fulfillment in their lives, so the humans made up the gods or God. Nietzsche said, now it's time to kill God and retake control of our destiny ourselves if humans create their own gods then humans are the ultimate sovereign if you can create a god well then aren't you the creator you're you've you've insulted god because you've said i don't like the reality of who god is so i'm going to make a god that i choose that's more to my liking that does as I want a God to do, and I'll fashion my own God. Now, Paul addressed this. Let me read Romans chapter 1. You've probably read this, wondered what was going on. This is what was going on. This was the mindset. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen in creation, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse as to whether there's a god or not paul says you can look at nature and there's no no way it could happen any other way it's by grand design and where there's a design there must therefore be a designer there must be a first cause always and the first cause you say well the big bang is the first cause and this guy where did the gas come from where did whatever is happening come from there must be a first cause for although they knew god They neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now what's being said is this, to worship God bits of creation rather than the creator is to worship a lie that you have sold yourself let me keep reading although they claimed to be wise they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images that look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles verse 25 they exchanged the truth of god for a lie and they worshiped and served created things bits of creation more than the creator who is forever praised amen now let me see if i can summarize that to claim that we the creation are the supreme power is to be filled with arrogance that's why this is a story about pride to say that we are all that is to completely dismiss that we we are created beings And that there is a God who is all of that. And you are just the creation uh, uh, of His 
of his hands. It's an affront to God to say that you are God. Now, this story centers around the fact that for a period of seven years, during a 44-year reign of an emperor, for seven of those 44 years, King Nebuchadnezzar was incapacitated. He was unfit for his royal duties because of his pride. God turned him into an animal. Fascinating story, isn't it? Fascinating story. There's a text uh, that was found at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And in Qumran they found the prayer of Nabonidus. Nabonidus being one of the kings of Babylon. And it mentions the king being ill for a period of seven years. At the end of which he was cured through an unnamed Jewish diviner. Further, the writings of the church fathers, uh, Eusebius, one of the church fathers, preserved in his writings a speech that Nebuchadnezzar gave from the rooftop of his palace. And in that speech, Nebuchadnezzar is prophesying and warning the people that the Medes and Persians will eventually come and that the Medo-Persian King Cyrus that will come and invade and overthrow Babylon is going to, to come and do harm to them. And he curses that king, Nebuchadnezzar curses the Median king that will come, and he puts a curse on him and says, may you become like an animal. Hmm. Now I've watched a lot of Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner. And I know you better be careful about two things, buying products from Acme, and by rolling stones and putting little sticks and devising schemes against other people. Because the schemes that you devise against others will come back upon your own head. Be careful about cursing others that the curse doesn't come right. I am rubber and you are glue kind of deal. You know what I'm saying? Uh, let me read to you what the wise King Solomon said. Whoever digs a pit will what? And whoever rolls a stone and puts a little stick and some bird seed and a string, what's going to happen? That stone's going to roll right back on you. Be careful about setting people up for failure and scheming things against other people. Now, it's just a proverb because it'll come back to haunt you. What's your saying in modern culture? What goes around? Boy, it's true, isn't it? I've told you many times about the lady who mistreated me at work and abused me, clean clean this, clean that, while she sat in the office and drank a glass of red wine. Bobby, go clean under there. Vacuum the dust vents. You do this, do this. I was like Cinderella. You know? About ten years later, in another career later, I was walking through the corporate office where I was a ten-year veteran and way up on the food chain. And I was walking down the hall, and I passed that lady. And I said, well, where did you come from? And she said, oh, I just started to work here. I said, well, I've been here for 10 years. It's good to meet you again. And where do you work? Oh, those people report to me. Be careful. Be careful who you mistreat. 
They may be your boss one day. That's all I'm saying. You know? Now the wise man knew this. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know this. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is all that. Let's get right to the story. The king's decree to praise the Lord. This is how it opens. Where the king, this pagan king, saying everybody needs to praise God. Now that should blow your mind right out of the gate. How do we even get to this? But let me read it and I'll explain. Daniel 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. He obviously has a vast empire, correct? May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs. How mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation <coughs> to generation. Now, immediately we're reading this <coughs> and we're like, who are you? Or you're the guy just a minute ago who's just, you know, I'll chop you in pieces and make your, your, your house desolate and, 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 and I'll kill your families. And he's like a terrorist one minute. And now he opens this chapter. He's like, I just want everybody to praise God. Listen, you're just like, wait, who are you right now? Because God has done such good things. It's like he's given a testimony at youth camp. God's done such good things in my life. Let's all join hands. Everybody just praise God for a minute. And I want to tell you how, God, how good God has been to me. He's done miracles for me. done great things in my life. Now, you should be asking right there. Wait a second. I've been reading about this guy for three chapters. What miracle did God perform for him? What did God do that caused the most powerful man on earth... Not only to acknowledge a higher power, but to recommend that everyone acknowledge the same higher power and ascribe praise to God. What takes an egomaniacal madman and causes him to acknowledge that there is a kingdom that's even bigger than his kingdom. And what causes this man to realize that his kingdom, like every kingdom before and after, will pass away. They are only temporary at best. But there is a kingdom that is an eternal kingdom, and that's the one you should have your eyes focused on. Whatever message he's about to say should be big news to world leaders. They should be sitting up and saying, this is one of the greatest leaders ever to live. He had one of the biggest empires, one of the most wealthy empires. He was a fantastic builder. He accomplished so much. What is his message to world leaders? Yet it's a message you will see that has not been received by the empire builders who come after him. The very heart of the story that God has been telling in the Bible is the story about God built, setting up a kingdom, the kingdom being lost because the humans rebelled, and now God's plan to reestablish his kingdom and reconnect uh, heaven and earth and to call out a people that will be his holy people. God established that kingdom by sending a king to this earth. And that kingdom started small and humble. A Jewish peasant named Jesus was really the son of God. And that little rock began to destroy the kingdoms of this world and grow like a mountain to fill the whole world. Now that was the story from previous chapters. Now here comes the troubling dream. <clears throat> Before I read the dream, I want to just see if I can find some common ground with you. We are all the result of all of our previous experiences and our reactions to those experiences. You are 
the sum of your previous experiences and your reactions to those previous experiences. I might even go a little bit further. You are the result of how you have responded to the transforming work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. As you've gone through experiences and you've responded and you've either resisted or yielded to the Spirit of God, maybe a way to say it too that we could all grasp is we are all a work in progress. We are all developing. Even as we sit here this morning, we have all been many years in the making. Except for the little baby, just maybe many months in the making, but the rest of us are all many years in the making. And we are a sum total of all of those experiences and reactions and, and yielding to God in our life. Uh, let me say it a different way. Very few of us are transformed quickly. Very few of us are transformed by solitary life events. If you have been transformed greatly through a solitary life event, if you have been affected deeply by a single event, then what I know about that event is that it was a devastating event. Usually it was a tragic event, or we would say traumatic event. And single traumatic events can have a dramatic transforming effect in our lives because those events are so incredibly intense when you're going through them. But mostly, we find the general vibe in the room, mostly life is a series of small events. That's true for most of us. A few big events thrown in. But life is a series of small events like a chain with links of events, each link affecting the next link, each event touching the next event that's going to come and touching the next event that's going to transpire in our lives. In these four decades, Nebuchadnezzar has been through many different experiences now. We're well into his reign, and he's been through many different experiences with God's people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been right there with the king, and he's gone through a lot of different experiences with them. And through those experiences, as you've seen in the previous three chapters, God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Through dreams, through Daniel, through these other men, God is working on his heart and God is dealing with him uh, personally and through the lives of God's people. Let me read now, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. You feel like deja vu now? There's a lot of this circling back now. Nobody can interpret the dream. Finally... Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. Now, you get some insight here. You know that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were given names of Babylonian idol gods, and their Babylonian idol names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What you are not as familiar with is that Daniel, Hebrew name, was also given a Babylonian god name, 
Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. Now next week we'll talk about King Belshazzar, different guy. Belteshazzar is Daniel. So when you see that name, it's Daniel that we're talking about, okay? He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And the spirit of the holy gods, plural, is in him. Now I want to make some remarks right here before we get further into the story. This is Nebuchadnezzar, first person, making a royal decree. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is on a journey. When I'm reading these three chapters, uh, four chapters into Daniel, the one thing I see as as a disciple maker is I see small bits of transformation in this man. He is on a journey and, and, and we feel when we're reading about him that he's so close to knowing God. So close. But he's not quite there yet. And the, his words in verse 8 reveal that he's close but not quite, hasn't quite arrived at an understanding of the truth. He still refers to Daniel by the idol name, Belteshazzar. And secondly, he still refers to, he has the knowledge of the gods, plural in him the spirit of the gods in him but here's what i find and i won't project it on you but here's what i find as i'm reading four chapters into the book of daniel i'm cheering for nebuchadnezzar now i know he's can be not the best guy but right here i'm just like yes come on yeah command everybody let's worship god don't you know let's don't uh, say derogatory things about God, chapter 3. He's open in the way for God to be worshipped and to accept a, 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 a new reality. And I find myself cheering for Nebuchadnezzar. He's this close. If he'll just forsake his idols and put his faith in the one true God, I, I want him to come and join us in the kingdom of God. And I feel like he's just right there if he'd just move a little bit further. So let's read on. Chapter 4, verse 9. I said... Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. Now he's going to tell you what his vision is. I looked, and there before me stood a tree. The tree is the subject of the vision. In the middle of the land, its height was what? All of these words are important. The tree grew large and strong, this massive tree. And the top of the tree reached up to touch the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were, what's the word? Glory. Just want you to see it's glorious, beautiful tree. But it's really a kingdom. It's really something, it's representing something. It is beautiful And the fruit is abundant, economic prosperity, man, everything is good. And on that tree was food for all. Under the tree, the wild animals found shelter. It's a place of protection. And the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, comma, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, and here's what the messenger said, cut down the tree and trim off the branches, strip off the leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds 
from its branches. But let the stump and the roots be bound with iron and bronze. Let it remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him, metaphor just changed, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Now, let me summarize. The dream is about a large, strong tree. So big, tall, strong, it touches the heavens, it spreads, and it's food for everything, it's shelter, it's protection, it feeds the world. But an angel comes down and makes a proclamation. Now, angelos in the New Testament, in the Greek, angel, what the word means in Greek is messenger. And what's very confusing in the New Testament is if Paul wanted to say, I'm sending Spencer as a messenger to Rome, he would use the word angelos, sending our angel Spencer to Rome. Well, Spencer's no angel if you've met him. But he is a messenger in that context. And so again, this is where nuanced words in English don't always align exactly with foreign ancient languages. But what you need to know is simply this. When God sends a messenger, what's your word for that? Angel. Angel is your word. And they come and announce things all the time for God. Mary held out that her highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. You're going to conceive it. He's a messenger. I am Gabriel. I'm sent with a message to tell you what's about to happen. It's very, very common in the Bible. And so anyway, a messenger comes down, an angel, and speaks on behalf of God. The angel is speaking, but God has made the decree, the decision. And God, the great king, says this, cut down the tree now if god the great king says cut down the tree the tree's coming down if god says the tower of babel's coming down down she's going to come if god says the sky is going to close up and no rain's going to come then no rain's going to come and if god says i'm going to open the windows of heaven and flood it all out then the rains are going to come for 40 days and for 40 nights what i want to get across to you is there's a power that's higher than human power and God makes decrees, and when God makes a decree, you, you better know the decree will stand. God says to the most powerful emperor in the world, cut down the tree. No army has been able to cut him down. No political insider in the capital has been able to stab him, poison him, or kill him yet. But right here in his reign, the great king, almighty God, says, you know what? For a season, I'm going to just cut the tree down. How about that? You say, why would God do that? Because I think God's cheering for Nebuchadnezzar too. I think God's cheering for him too. And maybe the only way to save him is to bring him down. So cut down the tree, God says, but leave the stump in the ground, bind it with iron and brass, and let it stay there in the field. Now, what happens in verse 15 is the messenger flips the metaphor from the tree to him. Uh, pronoun. Him. Let him be in the wild. Let him be wet with the dew. So I can know pretty quick here that the tree is a person. Can we all agree on that? 
because they're saying him now. Now let me keep reading. Verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And God will give the kingdoms to anyone he wishes. And he sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, I look at politics all the time as an observer. I'm fascinated. Obviously, I've got family members connected, and I'm fascinated with politics. I'm fascinated to know how a Joe Biden gets to be the president of the United States. Absolutely fascinated by that. Look back at how the campaign happened, the non-existence from the basement to leader of the free world. It's fascinating to me. You're like, how does this happen? Well, God gives us what we deserve. You say, well, how does Donald Trump get to be president? It's fascinating, isn't it? Who's the most unlikely guy ever to be president? That guy. Totally anti-establishment, government outsider, whatever. I'm not saying what, who you should vote. I'm just saying I'm fascinated by the whole mess. I look at the world leaders and I see those gathering of world leaders. And I'm not trying to speak against world leaders, but sometimes it looks like a collection of boobs and idiots. You know what I'm saying? And you're looking at them like, really, these people run the world? Seriously? We've got people running businesses here in Fort Worth that could do better than that. Don't you feel that way? You say, well, then how did these people get to be world leaders? So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. And he sets over them the lowliest of people. Had that been written in this day, it would have read something like this. And God gives people exactly what they deserve sometimes. Just so they can understand that their values are messed up. Or it might have read like this if it was written today. God sets the most bizarre people in the ruling places of planet earth to rule over the kingdoms of man. I'm just saying it's fascinating when you look at who the rulers are. Verse 18, this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, Daniel, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, I just want to reference this and bring it up to speed. Wouldn't it be wildly interesting this week at work if people dealt with you the way the king dealt, deals with Daniel? Wouldn't it be wild at work if, if you had such a reputation at work that your boss could come to you and could say, you, you know, Letty, nobody else can teach this concept, but I know you can teach it because the Spirit of God is in you. Would you, would you fix this for us? Or if, or if they come to you with a business problem and say, Macbeth, I know you can solve this. Nobody else can solve it here, but you've got an excellent spirit and you've been able to crack every nut we've given you. So listen, we're going to give you this business problem. We know you can fix it because there's an excellent spirit. Tommy, this happens to you all the time. All the time, your superiors at work are giving you stuff that nobody else can manage well and you just knock it out of the park. I know you. You are sharp, but you're not that sharp. This just gives you and I a chance to banter. Tommy is sharp. But what I want to say is the Spirit of God is in him. 
and the hand of God is upon him. And everything he touches turns to gold. You ought to hire that guy. Or that guy. Or that girl right there, she's the same way. Or this guy right here, he's the same. See, this is what should be true of God's people. Christy, you're going to crush it because everything you touch is going to turn to gold because the Spirit of God is in you and you're excellent. Now, it doesn't mean you can slough off and be lazy at work. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Daniel had built such a reputation at work that the king had such confidence in him when no one could help him at all, he went right to Daniel and said, nobody, these people are worthless. Daniel, come here. I know you can do this because the Spirit of God is in you. Now, he thinks it's the Spirit of the gods. Bear with me. I get that. But what I'm saying is Nebuchadnezzar sees in Daniel something different than he sees in everybody else. Now that's who you want to be. Now I'm going to qualify this because some of you who are raised Baptists think that means bizarre, be bizarre and weird and strange. You know, we are peculiar people. Yeah, you're living up to that for sure. What I'm saying is that is not God's charge to you to be as weird as you can be. God's charge to you is to be unique because the Spirit of God is in you and therefore you portray excellence in the workplace and in the school place. You know, I enjoyed uh, one of our young men who's a visitor here was telling me, you know, about himself and I said, listen, there's some brainiacs over here in the youth department. You need to connect to them and let them be your circle of friends and y'all all go excel together. That should be our people. We ought to be telling the success stories that are coming out of our youth department because the Spirit of God is upon excellent young people who are now going to do excellent things with their lives. The interpretation. Here it comes. Verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. Now Daniel's all shook up. So the king said, Belteshazzar, Daniel... Do not let the dream and its meaning alarm you. I see your face changed. I see you're not wanting to share with me what you already know. Daniel, don't be afraid to tell me the truth. These other people lie to me all the time. I called you in because I want you to shoot straight with me. I'm interpreting a little bit here, you understand. But that's what's happening. Then Daniel says, My Lord... If only the dream applied to your enemies. This is not good news. And I wish this was not going to be true of you. I wish this was, I wish I was about to talk about your adversaries. And so Daniel hesitates to give the interpretation. The king knows it's not good news. He's got that foreboding already. And the message is so horrifying, Daniel says, I wouldn't wish this upon you, king. But the king says, give it to me straight, Daniel. Now, what you're observing right here by design of the author is a fascinating dynamic between God's people and a pagan king. Fascinating dynamic here. King has destroyed Jerusalem, kidnapped these people, taken back, stripped their identity, reprogrammed them, put them into service, compulsory. And now you're watching Daniel, representing God's people, deal in compassion and mercy and grace and tact and love back to that very individual who took him captive. Daniel shows remarkable concern for King Nebuchadnezzar. What I'm seeing right here is a very Jesus-like approach to loving others and loving your enemies and loving your neighbor. It's very much a 
Christ-like dynamic coming out of Daniel right now. He's showing concern and kindness and not vindictiveness. Now, he's a captive. Daniel could have come out and said, well, what goes around comes around, king. You're about, to, ooh, you're about to get yours. Here it comes. That's not at all the attitude of Daniel. Daniel's like, I'm sorry I have to give you this news. I wouldn't wish this upon you. King says, okay, speak freely and give it to me. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw the Holy One, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump. Bound it with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, this is the decree... The Most High has passed, has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times will pass, seven years is what we're talking about. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and he'll give them to anyone he wishes the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots it means this your kingdom will be restored to you when when you acknowledge that heaven rules there's the story notice that the message of judgment is conditional conditional so daniel advises the king after delivering the bad news here here's what else i want to say king verse 27 therefore this would be my advice to the king your majesty be pleased to accept my advice if you value my advice accept it here it comes renounce your sins by doing what is right renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed and it may be then that your prosperity will continue now i just want to say to some of you god's always out there ready to clobber us no he's ready to bless you if you'll repent and if he has tugged at your heart and spoken to you these are god's messages to you like this dream saying turn around turn around turn around you say well i've made a mess of it that's okay there's always hope you can always get this straightened out. You can always repent. We can come back and do what's right and reorder. There may be consequences. There are always consequences. But we can deal with the consequences and we can reorder our lives and we can serve God and we can move forward. King, my best advice is don't get cut down. Humble yourself and say to God, I'm sorry, I've heard your message. We don't need to go to the woodshed in order for me to learn my lesson. I've learned it right here. But the next verses will tell you that the king did not heed Daniel's advice so now we come into the section what happens when dreams come true well here we go verse 28 all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later 
As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? By the words of is not this mine, that I, that me, that I, that my, that I. Selfie moment. My, my, my. That's what's happening. And here comes that arrogance. And that, he's not saying, I'm so proud of all of my people and what they've done. He's saying, I'm so proud of me because I'm all that. And I'm all that. And I'm all that. And God said, this is exactly what I warned you about, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority is taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and He gives them to whoever He wishes. And immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Lost his mind immediately. Went nuts. Temporary insanity. On the spot. He was driven away from people and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, uh, William Blake, uh, who's a bizarre kind of guy, paintings, but he made famous. You have the William Blake painting up there. This is William Blake's rendition of that verse right here. Famous painting that was painted depicting King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at his toenails and his fingernails and the hairy, feathery growth on his body and the wild beard and the crazy, crazy look in his eyes. You wouldn't want to meet him out on a walk through the forest, would you? He went nuts. And for seven years during a 44-year reign, history chronicles, he lost his mind. Cut him down! Believe the stump. And that was his condition. You couldn't deal with him. They drove him out of the palace and into the wilderness. You say, where's the king? Oh, he's out there grazing like a cow. I don't know. He's out there laid up under the tree somewhere. Don't go out there. He's crazy. He's a wild man. He'll bite you and claw you and you can't talk to him. God gave him the mind of an animal for seven years. <laughs> now, I want you to lock that in your mind and never forget this picture, Okay. Because now I want to show you that you can get to right here from where he was. Now let me show you artist depictions of where he was. Come forward with me, guys, on the photos. This is an artist representation of ancient Babylon. What it might have looked like from the roof of King Nebuchadnezzar looking out over the city of Babylon, which was the most famous city, three of the great world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Alexander the Great all ruled from Babylon at one point or another. Had the most fantastic city walls. I'll talk about it more next week. Had walls within walls. This is the famous mosaic tiled Ishtar gate named after one of their gods. Inside that city, they literally, it's on a plain in the middle of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Flat, flat, flat. They built mountains a bucket at a time. A bucket at a time. With no dump truck, they literally built mountains inside the city. Babylon was home to two of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Two of them were right there. 
One is the city walls, including this Ishtar gate and all of this. And one was the hanging gardens of Babylon. Let me deal just with the gate for a minute, just the walls. Another artist rendition. You say, how do the artists get to these artists' renditions? Come forward again now. Because this is a live shot from Berlin, Germany. And in Berlin, Germany, at the Pergamon Museum, that museum was built from 1910 to 1930 by order of German Emperor Wilhelm II. He sent archaeologists to ancient Babylon. They uncovered bits of tile and rock and stone. There's pictures on the internet that will fascinate you. And they brought it back to Berlin, Germany, as they did many other ancient wonders of the world in this museum. Has anybody ever been to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin? Oh gosh, we need to take a field trip, don't we? Road trip, anybody in? All right, and go see that famous Ishtar Gate is one of the wonders that they've recreated inside the museum. Now just think, that was assembled in uh, uh, 19, early 1900s in Berlin, Germany. It was originally built in 575 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar II or Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Now let's go forward again. Let me see what you got. Stop right here for a minute. It's not a great rendition, but it'll, it'll serve our purposes. If you were to look at ancient Babylon and you see the majesty and the splendor and the, the gates are covered in solid bronze, look like fire when the sun sets on them. You have to remember this. Nebuchadnezzar married uh, Amethyst, who was a Median from Media, princess. Media is mountains. And when he brought his princess down here to Babylon, she was really bored because it was just flat. He's like, yeah, here we are, West Texas, right? Uh, it'd be like coming from Tennessee or, or Colorado and having to live here in Fort Worth. You're like, oh, okay, well, there you go. And so what Nebuchadnezzar did is to keep his princess happy, he built mountains in the city. You know them as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. And they had a system to pump water up to the top of that mountain. And it cascaded down in lush waterfall In the middle of the arid plains. Waterfalls crashing down off of this mountain. And the whole mountain was covered in uh, trees and, and, and uh, flora of the period. And when the princess looked out of her window, she saw a mountain made by her husband. You, you guys got a lot to live up to, don't you? keep your bride happy that's what he did for for his bride now when he went out to his rooftop obviously they build different than you build they have a flat outdoor living space terraces he went out to his balcony and he looked out across babylon and he said this is fantastic <laughs> if i say so myself <laughs> it's fantastic is not this my great Babylon that I have built for my honor and my glory? And you know what? I'll put a big mirror right here because I really am all that. And, and, and he was successful, one of the most successful builders in the world. He had no labor problems. He enslaved everybody he wanted to. He had no financial problems. He had the wealth of the world. He was incredibly successful. He gave the orders. He paid the bills. But it caused him to be lifted up in pride. And when he got so lifted up in pride, God had already warned him, this is going to happen. Be careful. Don't get carried away with yourself. He began to say, I'm the ultimate reality. I worship the God of self. It's self, self, self. It's me, me, me. Now, I know you're not an emperor, but this is an American problem. We worship the God and goddess of self. 
And let me just ask you some questions. I'll start sending it towards the end zone now. Are you blessed? Do you acknowledge that God is the source of your prosperity? Wealth is just a tool. Money is just a tool. And the sooner you start looking at it that way, the the happier you're going to be. It's actually one of the greatest tools for building wealth. It's a tool that multiplies itself. It's a tool that is absolutely necessary in the disciple-making business. It's a fantastic tool, but it needs to be put in its right perspective and used in the right way. It's not just about comfort. It's not a tool for comfort. It's a tool to accomplish a mission. God waited until this moment of monumental arrogance and pride to exercise a judgment he had proclaimed 12 months earlier. And what I want to say to you is this. When you're hearing about Nebuchadnezzar, pride is a tricky sin. Because pride is not just a pagan king's sin. Pride is a student sin. Uh, pride is a middle class sin. Pride is a religious person's sin. Uh, pride, uh, I was talking to somebody who taught her children how to sign. She had deaf children and, and she was telling me all about what it meant to help people who were uh, disabled and, and, and how to teach them to sign and have a prosperous life. And she volunteered this bit of information. She said to me, the hardest thing in dealing with Uh, the ones who are disabled and teaching them how to sign and and read and all this is their own pride. She said they fight you the whole way. Now she knows she raised several of them. Pride. Pride is a deaf person's sin. Pride is anybody's sin. So when I'm talking about King Nebuchadnezzar's pride and you think of all this wealth and vastness, you're like, yeah, that's a real problem for him. I can see that. (laughs) But let me see if I can bring it home to us this morning and I'm going to ask you in your mind to take an assessment right now for pride. I'll put the questions on the side panels. And let's just run them as quick as I can. Do, you, do I regularly think of myself as more spiritual and mature than others in my life? Pride could be your sin. Do I struggle to humbly learn from others? especially those who are less educated or experienced than me? Am I quick to find fault with others and to verbalize those thoughts to others? Do I frequently correct or criticize others? Do I have a hard time admitting to God or to others that I am wrong? Do I tend to be controlling of my spouse or my children or my friends or those in my workplace? Do I get easily hurt? Or do I hold on to hurt for an extended period of time? Do I find myself constantly thinking about what other people are thinking about me? Pride could be your problem. Do I tend to talk more about myself and interrupt others in a conversation rather than listening? Do I tend to rely on my own abilities and strength rather than see the need for prayer and God's word? 
listen carefully, a big indicator of your own pride issue could be if you're sitting here thinking about how many of these questions apply to everybody else in the room, but not to you. God will cut down that tree if you don't heed the message and repent of pride. None of us want to have a downfall. Avoid the downfall and repent of pride. C.S. Lewis helped us out a lot because we often think when we're trying to deal with pride that it means, you know, this real neglect of self. That's not at all what we're dealing with here. C.S. Lewis said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. You don't have to devalue yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. It's not all about you. Well, what a great lesson from C.S. Lewis. Let me come back to the story now. His temporary insanity forced him to live in the fields like an animal. He eats like an animal. He has the mind of an animal. He looks like an animal. He acts like an animal. And for seven years, King Nebuchadnezzar, the great emperor of Babylon, remained in that condition until he's willing to acknowledge God. And then he looks up. Now I'm going to read the last bit of scriptures. At the end of that time, here's where the healing comes. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion as an eternal dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. I'm cheering for Him. He's preaching my sermon now. This is the sermon I preach all the time. I'm just like, you go, you go, amen, that's it. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand. No one can say to God, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to my throne, and I became, listen to this phrase, even greater than before. Some of you think the hurt has ruined your life. No, this became the catalyst to propel him to a whole new place of understanding and living. Your hurt, your sin, whatever you've been through, It's not the disqualifier. It could be the defining moment of your life. And now I came back, he said, and more glorified, more greater than ever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. Because everything he does is what? Right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to. To humble, there is the moral of the story. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is quite a contrast to the real hero of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who portrayed himself as a god. He stands in stark contrast to the one who is God, who humbled himself and became down and became a man. Let me read you Philippians and I'll close. This speaks of the real hero of the Bible, Jesus, who being in the nature of God 
did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's what I want to say to you. You will not have to search very hard this week to find something that God has done for you and in your life that you can brag on God about. Here is your mission this week. Rather than saying, I am all that, this week I want you to make much of Jesus Christ. Seven days of habitual praising Jesus. I just want you to wake up every day or somewhere in the day when it strikes you. You know what? i got a good job. You just stop right there and give God glory for that. You know what? I've got a good spouse. You just stop right there and give God glory for that. You know, whatever is happening in your life this week, I want you to make a big deal about Jesus Christ who is the one where every blessing comes from. Does that seem fair? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to do two things in this moment of prayer. One, I gave you an assessment for pride this morning and I can't help but believe as it did for me when I was reading those questions and applying them to myself that one or more of those points really hit home with you. You're too concerned what other people think. You're holding on to hurt. You're constantly critical. You think you're superior to others. You think you're smarter. You think you're more spiritual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some of that's got to find a place and resonate with you this morning. Use those talking points as your prayer this morning. And you just say to God, God, I confess my sin of pride because I see this morning that I, and you just fill in the blanks. Make your prayer right now. You don't have to have a a fall. You don't have to be cut down. You don't have to be decimated. Deal with it like this. Say, God, I, I see it. I acknowledge it. And I confess, God, that I'm just a bit of creation. You're the creator. And God, pride needs to have no place in my life. While God's people are dealing with that, I want to ask this morning, maybe... Uh, We have university students. We have high school students in the room this morning. About to go back to school this week. If any of you students want an adult to pray with you, then I'm going to ask you just to come and we'll have a time of prayer real quick. Uh, Deacons, uh, I want you to just come take the front row real quick right here. Just come and sit on the front row. Students, if you want somebody to pray with you, just come take the hand of one of the deacons and say, pray with me. And let them just pray over you this morning. It's a big week when you go back to school. A lot of of things need to happen in your heart and in your life this week. And uh, you need to go make friends. You need to go be a friend. You need to go get with the right crowd. If any of you students going to university or to school, high school, you want somebody to pray with you, you just come take the hand of one of our deacons this morning. Say, hey, pray with me. And they'll just spend a minute praying over you. Let me put this offer out there. If you're a school teacher and you're about to go back to school this week, I want you to make a difference in someone's life. Professor, school teacher, 
If you want somebody to pray with you, come take the hand of one of our deacons and say, pray with me. I'm about to go back to school. I'd like to rock it. I'd like to just be a light shining for Jesus at my school. I want you to pray over me this morning that I'd be a success this year for the Lord in my school. We'd be glad to pray with you this morning. You've come into the house of the Lord this morning. You're not sure about your relationship with God. You need to be sure. If you've never called upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you can call upon Him right now. There's never a better time than right now. One of our elders is in the back of the room. Our deacons are up here on the front row. You just slip out of your seat and find somebody and just say, Hey, pray with me. I need to receive Christ. They know exactly how to help you this morning. Let me use pride in its good sense this morning. I'm proud of you. People all over the room praying and asking God to do a work in their hearts. Prepare them for what's coming. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I won't give a benediction this morning. I'll close you in a prayer. Let's stand together, everyone. God, we feel your presence working in our hearts this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for not giving up on us. Lord, even in those seasons of our life where we are distant, we are pursuing our own designs and our own plans and God, maybe even seasons of our life where we don't acknowledge you. God, we want to repent of that this morning and say, forgive us. Forgive us for being distant and uh, not listening and, and, and out of tune with you. And God, we thank you so much that you never give up on us, that through all of those seasons of our own pride and our own uh, conceit, God, you're still there working in our lives and working in our hearts, trying to open our eyes to the truth and bring us to the correct understanding. God, thank you for that incredible long-suffering and patience that you've shown to us. Thank you for never giving up on us. God, we see Nebuchadnezzar's mistake. God, I pray that you've opened our eyes to see our own pride this morning. We don't have to be the emperor of a kingdom to have a heart that's lifted up in pride. It could just be that we won't let our hurt go. We refuse to move forward. We think we're better than the people around us. Lord, I realize we're not better than the people around us. We're just sinners. Who are incredibly grateful this morning that you have saved us and forgiven us. God, as we look at our classmates this week for the first time in many months, or we go to work tomorrow and see our cube mates and our co-workers, God, help us to care about them. Help us not to see ourselves as better than them. We're not. We're just incredibly blessed because we've been born again and forgiven by you.
God, I pray that you would use us like you used Daniel at work. Lord, may every cornerstone student, may every cornerstone adult find that favor with their employer. God, you know I pray this over my boys all the time, and I wear you out with it. But God, this is my prayer for my own sons, Lord, that you would give them favor with their employer. That people would look at my sons and the sons and daughters of Cornerstone and say, we trust these people. These people have answers. These are quality teachers. These are people I can share my heart with. These are trustworthy people. These are people in whom the Spirit of God lives. God, let that be the testimony of everyone hearing my voice this morning. For you disciples hearing this message in Latin America or Asia or Europe, may the testimony you have in your place be that people recognize that the light and the life and the Spirit of God is in you. God, that is your doing and not ours. And we praise you as the great Lord and King of our lives. Father, richly bless our week. Help it be a week of new beginnings and fresh starts as our kids go back, as our young adults go off to university. Lord, help them just to knock it out of the park. Lord, this is our prayer over your people. In Jesus' holy name we ask it. God's people said, God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you next Sunday.